So if you would turn in your Bibles to Psalm 37, and we're just looking at the first uh, 11 verses, uh, 13 verses actually, 1 through 13 of Psalm 37. We've been thinking of some ways throughout the year of how to make Communion Sunday a little bit more special and change some things, make it contemplative in our singing and our worship, uh, but also with our fellowship. So after the service, we're, we're going to go right into a light lunch. So if you're new with us, you're, to- you're absolutely welcome to join us. Please stay for the food that's been put out there uh, after the service as we fellowship and continue our communion with one another. Um, another thing that I'm attempting is just at least today, is, is take a break from 1 Samuel, these long Old Testament narratives that take a lot of work to think through and preach through, and just, and just meditate on a psalm this morning. So we're just going to meditate on Psalm 37. Just the first, it's a longer psalm, so we're just going to take a portion of it this morning and just, just really focus on God's truth, His, His goodness to us um, and grace. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Psalm 37, verses 1 through 13. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Psalm 37, of David. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light, and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord, and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. This is God's word. You may be seated and let's pray together. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. May it lift us up. May it open our eyes, shine light into our lives that where there's been darkness and shadows and confusion, sometimes just busyness and distraction, would all of our thoughts and our, and our heart be focused upon you this morning? And would you give us good news? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, one of the most pointed, deliberate, probing questions you could ask someone is, what do you really want? What do you really want? You can also ask that question another way. What do you delight in? What do you delight in? And you can even ask that question a third way. What do you desire? Wanting, delighting in, 
and desiring are three ways at arriving at the same place. We want what we delight in. And we desire what we want and what we delight in. The more I've read the Bible over the years and studied it, presented it, and taught on it, I've come to the conclusion that the Bible presents people, us, more as lovers than thinkers. That we love instead of think often. Far from just being brains on sticks walking around, we are lovers first and foremost. We are worshipers. We are desirers. I've said this in the past that you are what you love. You are what you love and what you desire. What you desire and love is, is at the driver's seat. Think of it in that, in that sense. What you love and desire is at the driver's seat of how you think and act. I've often said in the past as well that you become, and the Bible says this in Psalm 115, you become what you worship. You are what you love. We are lovers first, thinkers second, and doers third. And because of this, the Psalms are often about what we love. The Psalms are often about what brings us joy, what brings us delight. And it redirects that toward God, how that joy and delight comes to us most fully when we're captivated and worshiping and in devotion and in love with God. But the Psalms also, what I love about the Psalms, and I really encourage you to read, at least read one Psalm a day throughout the year, one Psalm a day, because the Psalms also capture the difficulty of life. When life doesn't meet our expectations, when we see people doing well, the evildoers, the wicked of the world succeeding, and we are struggling. When wickedness in the world seems to be doing just fine. And we're the ones with weak faith and struggling. And so the Psalms often remind us that the greatest gift of all is desiring and delighting in God. And that truth is summed up in this way, that God is after our hearts. One of the connection with really 1 Samuel that we've been preaching through is that God looks on the heart, where we often look at the outside. We look at the exterior of a person, but God looks at our hearts. He wants our hearts. He's after us. And why? Because he wants relationship with you. you I don't know what your vision of God is or how you were taught about God as you were uh, being raised or just what your thoughts were about God. Some of you may be thinking that God just wants you to obey the rules. That that is what it means to be in relationship with God, just to obey rules and not mess up. But that's not the truth. He does want us to follow rules, just as a parent wants their children to follow rules because they love them and they want them safe, but he ultimately wants relationship with you. He doesn't need anything from you. God doesn't need anything from you. He wants Isn't that amazing? He doesn't need you to follow the rules. He doesn't need more people to follow him. But he wants you. He wants to be in relationship with you. He desires your heart. So what we're going to look at this morning is is really, I'm going to key in on verse 4. Verse 4 is going to be our key verse. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you 
the desires of your heart. What an amazing verse. And so we're going to look at this idea of what true happiness and joy, where it comes from. How do we receive this true blessedness? Well, it results from, number one, a posture of God-focused desire, and number two, a perspective of God-focused <laughs> desire. So that's where we'll find where true happiness and joy comes from. But we first have to address a problem, and that's our first point, and that's the problem of me-focused desire. We're so focused on me and the world around us that we can't desire God. Look at the first verse here. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Fret not. That's a, I don't know if you use the word fret in your life, but it's, you may not. You may not know what it means. Fret essentially is just to be, be filled with anxiety, worry, to be sort of burning yourself up with anxiety over what's happening in your life. One of the times I remember being most worried and most anxious when I was a kid was when I was graduating from elementary school to middle school. I was going to a different building. Um, it was from, in fifth grade, you had one teacher all year long. But in sixth grade, you go to the big school and you have multiple teachers and you're going to different classes and you have to have a locker with a combination. And for some reason, my anxiety fixated on the fact that I was not going to know how to do that combination on that locker. I wasn't going to be able to figure it out. And I was going to have all my books locked in the, in the locker. And so I don't know why my anxiety is fixated on that. But, I mean, typically our anxieties do that, right? They fixate on something, something seemingly insignificant. But I think I genuinely had a panic attack before going to middle school. That's what fretting looks like. It's, it's you're being consumed, you're being burned up by anxiety. I don't know if you get anxious before you go to the doctor or before surgery. Often the anxiety is worse going in, leading up, than the actual operation. Right? It's, our, it's our fretting. But you see what he's, he's uh, warning us of. It's fretting not yourself because of evildoers. So he's saying, don't fret yourself because of what you see out there, what people are doing around you. Don't burn up and be angry. That word fret is also the word for anger in the Hebrew. It's when your desires are just on overdrive and you're losing control. Don't be consumed by what other people are doing, he's saying. But another way our desires get out of whack is when we're easily influenced and we don't know what we ought to desire. One of the problems of our desires is that we don't even know what we want and we're led around by others to tell us what we should desire and delight in. And we need to look no further than advertising and commercials to see this clearly. Advertisers are experts at telling us what we should want, aren't they? I mean, there's billion-dollar business devoted to telling us what we should want and not getting us to think it through clearly. Haddon Robinson writes that years ago, Marlboro cigarettes were marketed as cigarettes for sophisticated women. But Marlboro captured less than 1% of the market. So consumer research revealed, however, after they did a bunch of research, that men smoke because they believe it makes them more masculine. On the other hand, women smoke because they think it makes them more attractive to men. That's what they learned. 
So as a result of these findings, the advertisers switched their campaign away from women to men and gave Marlboros a masculine image. Rugged, weather-beaten cowpunchers were portrayed smoking cigarettes as they rounded up cattle. And the theme line invited the consumer to come to Marlboro country because the association of cigarettes with cowboys conveyed the idea that smoking Marlboros made them masculine. And so what do you think happened? Sales jumped 400%. Robinson writes, the idea, of course, is nonsense. Medical evidence tells us Marlboro country is a cemetery. And the Marlboro man probably suffers from cancer and lung disease. Yet, because the idea that smoking makes you masculine slipped into the mind without clearly being stated... It gained wide acceptance and boosted sales dramatically. And so what that example shows me, it's evidence that it reveals that when our desires are me-focused, we become insecure. That men desperately wanted to be seen as masculine, so they smoked cigarettes. And women desperately wanted to be seen as attractive to men, and they were insecure about it. So what did they do? They smoked cigarettes. It plays on our insecurities often, and we can be easily lured. But another, another thing that the psalmist, or David, is getting us to look at is that, is that often we're envious of wrongdoers. We're envious of their success. We're envious of what they're doing. Psalm 73 actually speaks to this, to this as well. But we're told, don't desire them. Don't desire their success. We want what wrongdoers have. Have you ever thought it'd be a lot easier? I'd be a lot wealthier if I wasn't a Christian, if I didn't tithe, if I didn't, if I didn't give away what I'd earned to God. It's a temptation all, all believers face. But what is the, what's the truth? Look at verse 2. They will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. We place often our hopes in things that don't last. They just aren't going to last. We often um, we want to fill our heart with things that will never satisfy. The human heart is a chasm of desire, and anything you put into it will not fill it up. It's too deep. Only God is big enough to fill it. So that's the problem, simply put, is that often our desires are me-focused. We're focused on ourselves which leads us to focus on the world around us, but because of ourselves. So how do we address that? How do we change that? Well, first, we need to look at our posture. What is our posture of God-focused desire? Well, I've got three different postures that we need to take practically. So think of each of these as a practical step you can take to better your posture, spiritual discipline. I've been weightlifting with a few of the guys in the church Josh Sparks, Blake Wilkes, and uh, Alan Hardison. And um, I'm, I've been sore lately. And I don't know if you've noticed, uh, I have a little bit of a gimp walking around. I haven't lifted very much, but these guys do lift. <laughs> and uh, one thing I've learned, though, is that as you're, as you're lifting and you know, working those muscles, uh, it can help your posture, actually, because you're actually feeling muscles you haven't felt before, <laughs> maybe in your back and in your shoulders. 
and it makes you uh, think about them and, and want to sit up straight, stand up straight. And, um, and we know good posture is good for you in the long run. I, I remember people telling me when I was a kid, don't slump forward. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna be slumping when you're in old age. So good posture will help you walk straight into your old age. And spiritually, that's true as well. Practicing good posture is a good discipline because it will help your theological, spiritual spine as well. Having good posture. So what are those, those practical steps we can take to have good posture in our lives as believers? Well, first is trust in the Lord. Look at verse 3. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Trust in the Lord. What does that look like to trust in the Lord? Well, he gives us some very practical ways. He says, do, he says, do good and dwell in the land. What are those things mean? I like that kind of vague uh, command. Just do good. Do the next good thing in your life. Well, what do you know that's good? What do you know God's told you to do? Just do it. Just do it. But look at the, the, the ideas of dwelling in the land, befriending faithfulness. The Hebrew can also mean feed on faithfulness or find pasture in faithfulness. So he's really giving this shepherding language that we are sheep. And we need to dwell in the land. Notice the emphasis on the physical there. What that tells me is, is enjoy the place, the church, the job, the family that God has for you. You're in a specific place. You're in a specific church with specific people around you that you are called to love and be near. Be faithful to those callings. You're here for a purpose, not accidentally. You walked in this morning because God ordained it on purpose, not accidentally. Don't always live, and I've got to tell myself this, don't always live with your head in the clouds and the, and the future what-ifs or the past what-ifs. Dwell with the people God's called you to be with. Be faithful to the people he's called you to be with. Fulfill, if you're a member here, fulfill your covenant vows to the other members. They serve you, you serve them. Church membership is a job description, not just a status. And if you do this, You'll find pasture. You'll find good things to feed on. You'll be blessed. This is all a part of trusting in the Lord. And we come to our central verse in verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Let's look at that verse. How does this work? Many of you, like me, love that second half of the verse, right? God will give you the desires of your heart. That sounds pretty good. We zero in on that second half, don't we? we? He'll give us all the desires of our heart. But here's the problem. You can't check the delight box and then receive your dream car, your dream vacation, or et cetera, whatever. Fill in the blank. Because when you check that delight box, when you are truly delighted in God, it means your heart has been transformed. And you want nothing more than God himself. What a blessing it is to receive what we desire. But the first part of the verse drastically influences the meaning. If you first delight in God, he'll give you what you want, which will be what? God. And who gives us the most joy? God. 
What the psalmist is saying is that God wants our thoughts, our desires, and our wants to be God-centered because that's what's best for us. And will he include other good things, good gifts in, in with that? Absolutely. Absolutely. But he wants our heart first and foremost. He wants us to delight in him and everything else will be taken care of. That's what God's saying. Everything else. Verse 5, another practical step to increase our, uh, better our posture. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. Commit yourself to the Lord. Have you committed yourself to the Lord? Are you still waffling back and forth? It's, I don't know if this Lord, if, if, if God is for me or if I'm for him. I don't know whose side I'm on. Are you still on the fence? Once you make a decision, once, once you've made that commitment, you really don't waver. Although we struggle sometimes, we don't waver ultimately. Decide what you believe. That's what it, the text is saying. The gospel is clear. You're a sinner that needs a savior. Decide if that's true for you or not. Know what you believe and why you believe it. Don't spend the rest of your days and your decades waffling back and forth and saying, throwing up your hands, like, I don't, I don't know if this is true or not. Be decisive. Ask someone. Learn from someone. Commit your way to the Lord. He will never let you down. I'll tell you from my own experience, there's never been a time in my life where I regretted a commitment that I made to the Lord. Where I said, well, that didn't work out. That, that was a failure. No, he always, he always honors faithfulness. Always honors it. And he draws us closer to him. He's always met me in the moment of fear and exceeded my expectations. And we're promised that in the last half of that verse. He will act. How can we commit to God? How can you be willing to commit to God? Know that he's committed to you. He will act. He'll do his part. Let's look at verse 7. Well, verse 6 first says, He will bring forth your righteousness as the light. He will honor what, what he sees in you and your justice as the noonday. He will take care of each one of us. Let's jump to verse 7 now. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Be still before the Lord. That's, that's repeated numerous times throughout the Psalms. But it's so hard for us to do, isn't it? And it's getting harder in our day and age. We always need to ask ourselves, how are we actively being still before the Lord? Do you have moments where there's no interruptions in your life? Can you focus and meditate on God and his word? We read in the Gospels that Jesus would go away to desolate places to be alone from the crowds, from the disciples, and pray to his father. If he needed to do that, brothers and sisters, you need to do that. I need to do that. Where can you do that? And I'm not talking about finding time to veg out and watch Netflix. That's not being still. You're still being a consumer of information and entertainment. That has to stop. We've got to be able to turn it off. Part of the reason we have a silent time of confession of sin in the service is it may be the first time this week that you've actually sat still for 30 seconds in silence. Our day and age with cell phones and social media, we cannot guarantee that people have sat in silence throughout at any point. 
throughout the week. We need that stillness so bad. Because you cannot know what you want or what you need unless you get silent and still. In those moments that you ponder God, ponder his word, and ponder his existence, and you ponder your own purpose, we don't do that enough today. Be still and be patient and wait upon him and he will show up. Go to verse 8. Forsake anger and wrath. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. I actually mentioned last Sunday that love gets angry, that there is an anger within our desire for righteousness. And that is true. There is a righteous kind of anger that is mad at the sin in this fallen world and greatly desires to see it come to an end and be conquered and vanquished. But there's also a kind of anger and wrath that we are to reject, to put to death. It's probably the anger and wrath you most often see in your life and in your own heart. It's a selfish kind of wrath and anger. It's consumed with self. It's driven by fear. It's unpredictable. It's impulsive. It's out of control. That's what he's telling us to to forsake. To forsake that impulse. Donald Hall, an American poet and writer, in one of his books wrote, What's the worst thing I ever did? He's just contemplating on some regrets. He says, A momentary scene fixes itself in my head. Andrew, his son, was three years old, noisy and affectionate, needy, darling, and annoying. We lived in a ranch house outside Boston. I wrote my poems in the cellar where I kept a desk, a wormy sofa, two chairs, and books on shelves held up by bricks. To the door at the top of the stairs, I hammered a hook and an eye so that I could close myself off. One morning, I left the house briefly. When I returned, I was eager to get back to my poem at at my desk, but Andrew stood in my way. I pushed past him and set a foot on the top stair, trying to fasten the hook behind me. Andrew called, Daddy, Daddy, and held onto my leg. You're a bad boy, I told him enraged. You're a bad boy. His face crumpled and reddened. Being called a bad boy was the most devastating accusation possible. With passionate humiliation, at the age of three, his red curls shaking, he insisted, I'm not a bad boy, Daddy. I'm not a bad boy. And I hooked the door shut, climbed down to my desk, and picked up my pen. You guys ever have moments like that, thinking about your own raising of kids? Donald Hall expressed anger and wrath that day. And he punished his son with his own words. But it wasn't righteous anger, was it? It was selfishness that drove him. It wasn't righteous anger. But when you desire God above all else, it isn't about you anymore, is it? You sort of get pushed out of the way when you focus on God. Del Ralph Davis says, What David in this psalm is pushing for is a posture of non-idolatry. That is, he wants to keep you from acting as if you're God. As if in your effort, you will right the wrong. That your rage will correct the injustice. Don't begin to think that your seething, your boiling anger will somehow produce equity. Leave to your God to order and provide. That is to be your posture. That is what the psalm is telling us to do, to leave that anger behind, that kind of anger behind. 
Well, the last practical instruction we're given, and we see it throughout this psalm, is a, is a new perspective. That we're to have a perspective of God-focused desire. We've, looked, we've talked about our posture. What about perspective? How does having a, 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 a good perspective help us? I don't know if you've traveled much in a plane, been up high in the sky, but going higher physically, thousands of feet up in the air, makes things look small, doesn't it? I had a very interesting, unique experience as a kid in that my dad turned about 40. He really wanted to fly helicopters. Never done it before. And he decided he was going to get his private pilot's license. And, um, and he dedicated himself to it. He studied. I remember helping him study to pass his test. And he'd actually come down to Hampton. Uh, we were from Lynchburg. He would come down to Hampton and, and, and have a coach that he would learn from, a teacher. I didn't know anything about Hampton. I had no idea, obviously, that I was going to live right down the street from Hampton. Uh, later in life, all I knew is that it was near the beach. But he uh, loved helicopters. He actually ended up purchasing a helicopter, and he kept it in our backyard. So imagine living in Gatling Point or wherever and having a helicopter in your backyard. Our neighbors certainly didn't appreciate it. But for a kid, that was amazing, right? To go up with your dad in a helicopter from your backyard. Um, He let me control it sometimes. Um, It's pretty awesome. And, uh, and so I remember the, the feeling of like, you know, as you're a kid, you're, you know your backyard, you know your neighborhood, your street, but it's surreal when you just start going up in the sky from your neighborhood and you start to see your whole neighborhood. Then you start to see your town and then you can start to see the next city uh, beyond there and everything starts to transform because you're up high and it changes your perspective and makes things down, down below feel small. And my dad struggled with depression, and I think part of why he liked going up is it, it makes your troubles go away in a sense. It feels small. Um, I obviously I don't fly helicopters, but I do like to go hiking. And, um, and hiking is, is wonderful because you can hike to the top of these beautiful vistas in the Blue Ridge Mountains and, and go out to these outcrops where the rocks have not um, been uh, weathered as much, these sandstone or... or different uh, rocks and just get up on that big rock and look around at the valley and you see how small things are. And so that is what he's trying to get us to do. That's what David is trying to get us to see at how small and not lasting the world is around us. That nothing in this world is lasting. John Wesley, when he was 87, was writing to a man named Alexander Mather. And he was talking about how, uh, how powerful it is when, when Christians are the, out there who desire nothing but God and what they're capable of doing. And he said, you know, he started the Methodist church, and he said, the danger of ruin to Methodism does not lie here. It, it springs from quite a different quarter. He says, our preachers, and when he says preachers, think of Christians. Our preachers and Christians, many of them are fallen. They are not spiritual. They are not alive to God. They are soft. They are fearful of shame and toil and hardship. But he said, give me 100 preachers who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God, and I care not a straw whether they be clergymen or laymen. Such alone will shake the gates of hell and set up the kingdom of heaven upon earth. Right? That's the difference 
we can make in the world. We just focus on the most important things. That though this life is hard and, and difficult and full of toil, it is temporary. That there is an end in sight to the evil in the world. Though the trinkets of this world are shiny and appealing to our senses, don't be fooled into thinking that they'll give you true joy. They won't. They'll rust, they'll decay, and they'll fade. All throughout this psalm, these 13 verses, there is a repetition of the thought that the wicked's time is coming to an end. Look at verse 2. The wicked will soon fade like grass and wither like a green air. Verse 10. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. In verse 13, but the Lord laughs at the wicked for he sees that his day is coming. He sees that his day is coming. He's, he's getting us to this 30,000 foot view of the world and saying it's temporary. In short, there's a destination to this journey of life. I don't know if any of you watched the show Lost that came out in the early 2000s. Uh, I loved the, the show. It was great. A lot of mystery that they would reveal throughout the show. But the end of the show got horrible reviews because it got so complicated, this, the, the plot that they created, that they couldn't tie up all these loose ends. And the final scene is, is basically all the characters meeting in the future and hugging. And you have all these symbols of the various religions and it all ties together and everybody's happy. And they walk into the, the afterlife together, not answering any of our questions. And I was reading someone talking about that, saying that this is a perfect description of a postmodern existentialism. That basically it's about the journey. It's about the journey. It's not about the destination. It's not about answering your questions. There's no meaning there that we need to discover. But the reason we were all upset is because we do need a purpose. We do need a destination. That's written into our hearts. There's got to be some sort of completion to this work. I was reading from a pastor this week. He says, as a pastor, I rarely feel a sense of completion. There's always work to be done in the ministry. Always, people are always being sanctified. They're never finished products. He says, that's why I love cutting my grass. I love running the mower because I can complete a job and it's done. He says, if I'm ever really stressed, don't offer to mow my lawn, okay? I, I, I agree with that. But my wife, lovely wife, texted me when I shared her with that, uh, that text that she responded with some gospel truth from my heart, and she reminded me that at the end of Jesus' life, when he was on the cross about to die, he says, it is finished. It's finished. The job is done. She said, our righteousness through Christ's work is the only thing that's ever really done. even though sometimes it doesn't feel like it. Christ finished. He sat down at the right hand of the Father and fulfilled his work for you. And so I want to conclude with this thought as we move into a time of communion soon, that Jesus' desire, we talked about our desires all throughout this sermon, but Jesus has a desire for you and me, that he wants to be with you. I'm amazed earlier when I read from, from Luke 22 where Jesus is about to sit down with the disciples and they're about to have Passover together right before he's about to suffer. And it says this, And when the hour had come, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I mean, think about that. That Jesus is about to die on the cross. And what does he want most? To be with his disciples. 
to eat with them, to commune with them, because he loves them. In their sin, in the, the muck of life, he loves them still, right before he's about to go through the worst pain possible. It reminded me of Psalm 18, verse 19, that he brought me into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. I am awestruck at his love for me and for us. Even while knowing everything about me, my selfishness, my pride, he still loves me. This is the only relationship you'll ever experience where the person knows everything about you inside and out. And he loves you even more than anybody else will ever love you. Right? If you're married, you, you may have a spouse that knows you, but your spouse really doesn't know the half of, of what is true about you. There's a lot that goes up in here and in here that nobody knows about except God. And yet God loves you more than anybody can. Isn't that amazing? Scotty Smith writes great prayers. I read them often on, online on the Gospel Coalition, and he writes this one prayer that really stood out to me as, as we transition here. He says, in our, this is a prayer to God. In our best moments, our love for one another is a mere hint and whisper of the way you love us, God. And we are the beloved, the bride upon whom you've set your deepest affections, and for whom you've given your very life. This isn't the gospel I grew up with, but this is the gospel. To be desired is to be wanted, to be pursued, enjoyed, seen and accepted, known and nourished, remembered and cherished. All of this is promised and provided in the gospel. Only the Holy Spirit can enable us, can enable me to believe and experience the liberating truths, the unparalleled beauty, the oceans of delight revealed in this book and held out in the gospel. So I cry out today, come, Holy Spirit, come. Rescue me from my unbelief. Dethrone my false notions of God and the gospel. Soften my hard heart. It's one thing to rest in Jesus' finished work, but another thing to be alive to his present desire to do a great work in our hearts. Help all of us, he concludes, the unmarried, the happily married, and the miserably married to realize that you, Jesus, are the spouse we always wanted, the one to whom we belong, and more importantly, Jesus, help us to believe that you are the spouse that always wanted us. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.